And now, Good Morning, Holy Spirit, by Benny Hinn, from the Nelson Audio Library. How do you recognize the Holy Spirit? It's as simple as that little voice you hear when you're about to fall asleep. The voice that reminds you, you haven't prayed today. Or he may say, you haven't read the Word today. That's the Spirit speaking, tugging at your soul. You know him already, but he yearns for you to know him more. In this book, Benny Hinn draws you into his search for a deeper understanding of God and how God's Holy Spirit worked in his life and can work in yours. How the Spirit guided and taught him despite his family's opposition. The Spirit was his comfort and strength, and Benny Hinn wants you to have the same for your Christian life. Listen now to Good Morning, Holy Spirit. Chapter 1 can I really know you? It was three days before Christmas, 1973. The sun was still rising on that cold, misty Toronto morning. Suddenly, he was there. The Holy Spirit entered my room. He was as real to me that morning as a book you hold in your hand is to you. For the next eight hours, I had an incredible experience with the Holy Spirit. It changed the course of my life. Tears of wonder and joy coursed down my cheeks as I opened the scriptures, and He gave me the answers to my questions. It seemed that my room had been lifted into the heavenlies, and I wanted to stay there forever. I had just turned 21, and this visitation of God's presence was the best birthday present or Christmas gift I had ever received. Just down the hall were my mother and father. They would never understand what was happening to their Benny. In fact, had they known what I was experiencing, it could have been the breaking point in a family that was already on the verge of shattering. For nearly two years since the day I gave my life to Jesus, there was virtually no communication between my parents and me. As the son of an immigrant family from Israel, I had humiliated the household by breaking tradition, Nothing else in my life had been this devastating. In my room, however, it was pure joy. Yes, it was unspeakable. Yes, it was full of glory. It was ecstasy. If you had told me just 48 hours earlier what was about to happen to me, I would have said, no way. But from that very moment, the Holy Spirit became alive in my life, he was no longer a distant third person of the Trinity. He was real. He had a personality. And now I want to introduce him to you. My friend, if you are ready to begin a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit that surpasses anything you ever dreamed possible, listen on. If not, let me recommend that you stop the tape forever. That's right. Stop the tape. Because what I'm about to share will transform your spiritual life. Suddenly it will happen to you. It may be while you're reading, perhaps while you're praying, or while you're driving to work. The Holy Spirit is going to respond to your invitation. He's going to become your closest friend, your guide, your comforter, your lifelong companion. And when you and he meet, you'll say, Benny! Let me tell you what the Spirit has been doing in my life. God's Power Revealed 
a short night in Pittsburgh. A friend of mine, Jim Pointer, had asked me to go with him on a charter bus trip to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I had met Jim, a free Methodist minister, at the church I attended. The group was going to attend a meeting of a healing evangelist, Catherine Kuhlman. To be honest, I knew very little about her ministry. I'd seen her on television, and she totally turned me off. So I wasn't exactly filled with expectation. But Jim was my friend, and I didn't want to let him down. On the bus, I said, Jim, you'll never know what a tough time I had with my father about this trip. You see, after my conversion, my parents had done everything in their power to keep me from attending church. And now a trip to Pittsburgh? It was almost out of the question, but they grudgingly gave their permission. We left Toronto on Thursday about mid-morning, and what should have been a seven-hour trip was slowed by a sudden snowstorm. We didn't arrive at our hotel until one o'clock in the morning. Then Jim said, if we weren't outside the doors of the building by six o'clock, we'd never get a seat. Well, I just couldn't believe it. Who'd ever heard of standing in the freezing cold before sunrise to go to church? It was bitter cold. At five, I got up and put on every bit of clothing I could find, boots, gloves, the works. We arrived at the First Presbyterian Church, downtown Pittsburgh, while it was still dark. But hundreds of people were already there, and the doors wouldn't open for two more hours. Being small has some advantages. I began inching my way closer and closer to the doors and pulling Jim right behind me. There were even people sleeping on the front steps. A woman told me, They've been here all night. It's like this every week. As I stood there, I suddenly began to vibrate as if someone had gripped my body and begun to shake it. I thought for a moment that the bitter air had gotten to me, but I was warmly dressed and I certainly didn't feel too cold. An uncontrollable shaking just came over me. Nothing like that had ever happened before, and it didn't stop. I was too embarrassed to tell Jim, but I could feel my very bones rattling. I felt it in my knees, in my mouth. What's happening to me, I wondered. Is this the power of God? I just didn't understand. Racing through the church. By this time, the doors were about to open, and the crowd pressed forward until I could hardly move. Still, the vibrating wouldn't stop. Jim said, Benny, when those doors open, run just as fast as you can. Why? I asked. If you don't, they'll run right over you. He'd been there before and knew what to expect. When those doors opened, I took off like an Olympic sprinter. I made it right to the front row and tried to sit down. An usher told me the first row was reserved. I learned later that Miss Kuhlman's staff handpicked the people who sat in the front row. She was so sensitive to the spirit that she wanted only positive, praying supporters right in front of her. With my severe stuttering problem, I knew it would be useless to argue with the usher, but Jim and I found a spot on row three. It would be another hour before the service began, so I took off my coat, my gloves, and my boots. As I relaxed, I realized I was shaking more than before. It just wouldn't stop. The experience was foreign to me. To be honest, I was scared. As the organ played, all I could think about was the shaking in my body. It wasn't a sick feeling. It wasn't as if I were catching a cold or a virus. In fact, 
The longer it continued, the more beautiful it became. It was an unusual sensation that didn't really seem physical at all. At that moment, almost out of nowhere, Catherine Kuhlman appeared. In an instant, the atmosphere in that building became electric. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't feel anything around me. All I knew was that I had been shaking for three hours. Then, as the singing began, I found myself doing something I never expected. I was on my feet, my hands were lifted, and tears streamed down my face as we sang, How Great Thou Art. It was as if I had exploded. Never before had tears gushed from my eyes so quickly. Talk about ecstasy. It was a feeling of intense glory. I wasn't singing the way I normally sang in church. I sang with my entire being. And when we came to the words, Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, I literally sang it from my soul. I was so lost in the spirit of that song that it took a few moments for me to realize that my shaking had completely stopped. But the atmosphere of that service continued. I thought I had been totally raptured. It was like coming face to face with pure spiritual truth. Whether anyone else felt it or not, I did. In my young Christian experience, God had touched my life, but never as He was touching me that day. Like a wave. As I stood there continuing to worship the Lord, I opened my eyes to look around because suddenly I felt a draft and I didn't know where it was coming from. It was gentle and slow, like a breeze. I looked at the stained glass windows, but they were all closed, and they were much too high to allow such a draft. The unusual breeze I felt, however, was more like a wave. I felt it go down one arm and up the other. I actually felt it moving. What was happening? Could I ever have the courage to tell anyone what I felt? They would think I'd lost my mind. For what seemed like ten minutes, the waves of that wind continued to wash over me, and then I felt as if someone had wrapped my body in a pure blanket, a blanket of warmth. Catherine began ministering to the people, but I was so lost in the spirit that it really didn't matter. The Lord was closer to me than He had ever been. I felt I needed to talk to the Lord, but all I could whisper was, Dear Jesus, please have mercy on me. I said it again. Jesus, please have mercy on me. I felt so unworthy. I felt like Isaiah when he entered the presence of the Lord. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. It was as if a giant spotlight was beaming down on me. All I could see were my weaknesses, my faults, and my sins. Again and again I said, Dear Jesus, please have mercy on me. Then I heard a voice that I knew must be the Lord. It was ever so gentle, but it was unmistakable. He said to me, my mercy is abundant on you. Those words rang on in my ears. 
My prayer life to that point was that of a normal, average Christian. But now I was not just talking to the Lord, He was talking to me, and, oh, what a communion that was! Little did I realize that what was happening to me in the third row of the First Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh was just a foretaste of what God had planned for the future. I sat down crying and sobbing. There was just nothing in my life to compare with what I felt. I was so filled and transformed by the Spirit that nothing else mattered. At that moment I felt, as the Word describes it, peace which surpasses all understanding. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. Jim had told me about the miracles that took place in Miss Kuhlman's meetings, but I had no idea what I was about to witness in the next three hours. People who were deaf suddenly could hear. A woman got up out of her wheelchair. There were testimonies of healings for tumors, arthritis, headaches, and more. Even her severest critics have acknowledged the genuine healings that took place in her meetings. Why was she sobbing? As the service continued and I quietly prayed, everything stopped suddenly. I thought, Please, Lord, don't ever let this meeting end. I looked up to see Catherine burying her head in her hands as she began to sob. She sobbed and sobbed so loudly that everything came to a standstill. The music stopped, the ushers froze in their positions. It continued for what seemed like two minutes. Then she thrust back her head. There she was, just a few feet in front of me. Her eyes were ablaze. She was alive. In that instant, she took on a boldness I had never seen in any person. She pointed her long, slender finger straight out with enormous power and emotion, even pain. If the devil himself had been there, she would have flicked him aside with just a tap. It was a moment of incredible dimension. Still sobbing, she looked out at the audience and said with such agony, Please, she seemed to stretch out the word, Please don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Then she said, Don't you understand? He's all I've got. She continued her impassioned plea, saying, Please, don't wound him. He's all I've got. Don't wound the one I love. I'll never forget those words. I can still remember the intensity of her breathing when she said them. In my church, the pastor talked about the Holy Spirit, but not like this. His references had to do with the gifts or tongues or prophecy, not, he's my closest, most personal, most intimate, most beloved friend. Catherine Kuhlman was telling me about a person that was more real than you or I. Then she pointed her long finger down at me and said with great clarity, He's more real than anything in this world. Something literally grabbed me on the inside. I cried, I've got to have this. And as the service came to a conclusion, I looked up at the woman evangelist and saw what seemed to be a mist around her and over her. At first I thought my eyes were playing tricks on me. But there it was, and her face was shining like a light through that mist. I don't for one moment believe that God was trying to glorify Miss Kuhlman, but I do believe He used that service to reveal His power to me. 
When the service was dismissed, the crowd filed out, but I didn't want to move. I had come in racing, but now I just wanted to sit down and reflect on what had just happened. What I had felt in that building was something my personal life did not offer me. I knew that when I returned to my home, the persecution would continue. My own self-image was practically destroyed because of my speech impediment. Even when I was a child in Catholic schools, my stuttering left me isolated with almost no one to talk to. Even after I became a Christian, I made very few friends. How could I meet new people when I could hardly communicate? So I never wanted what I found in Pittsburgh to leave me. All I had in life was Jesus, and nothing else in life had much meaning. I had no real future. My family had practically turned their backs on me. Oh, I knew they loved me, but my decision to serve Christ had created a gulf that was exceedingly wide. I just sat there. After all, who wants to go to hell after they've been to heaven? But I had to go back. I paused at the back of the church for one last moment, thinking, what did she mean? What was she saying when she talked about the Holy Spirit? All the way back to Toronto, I kept thinking, I don't know what she meant. I even asked a few people on the bus. They couldn't tell me. They didn't understand either. Needless to say, when I arrived home, I was totally exhausted, but I could not sleep. My body was weary to the bone, but my spirit was still stirring like a never-ending series of volcanoes erupting inside me. Knowing God's presence. Who is pulling me? As I lay on my bed, I felt as if someone was pulling me off the mattress and onto my knees. It was a strange sensation, but I felt it so strongly I couldn't resist. There I was, in the darkness of that room, on my knees. God wasn't through with me yet, and I responded to His leading. I knew what I wanted, but I didn't quite know how to ask for it. I thought, I want what Catherine Kuhlman's got. I wanted it with every atom and fiber of my being. I hungered for what she was talking about, even though I didn't understand it. Yes, I knew what I wanted to say, but didn't know how to say it. So... I decided to ask the only way I knew in my own simple words. And here is what I prayed. Holy Spirit, Catherine Kuhlman says you are her friend. I slowly continued. I don't think I know you. Now, before today, I thought I did. But after that meeting, I realize I really don't. I don't think I know you. And then, like a child, with my hands raised, I asked, Can I meet you? Can I really meet you? I wondered, Is what I'm saying right? Should I be speaking to the Holy Spirit like this? And then I thought, If I'm honest in this, God will show me whether I'm right or wrong. If Catherine was wrong, I wanted to find out. After I spoke to the Holy Spirit, nothing seemed to happen. I began to question myself. Is there really such an experience as meeting the Holy Spirit? Can it truly happen? My eyes were closed. Then, like a jolt of electricity, my body began to vibrate all over exactly as it had through the two hours I waited to get into the church. It was the same shaking I had felt for another hour once inside. 
I was afraid to open my eyes. This time it was as if everything that happened in that service had all been rolled into one moment. I was shaking, but at the same time I again felt that warm blanket of God's power wrapped all around me. Well, after a time I did open my eyes, but I was still tingling with the power of God's Spirit. When I finally dropped off to sleep that night, I still didn't realize what had begun in my life. The first words I spoke. Early, very early the next morning, I was wide awake, and I couldn't wait to talk to my newfound friend. Here were the first words out of my mouth. Good morning, Holy Spirit. The second I said, Good morning, Holy Spirit. I knew He was present with me in the room. Not only was I filled with the Spirit that morning, I also received a fresh infilling every time I spent time in prayer. What I am talking about is beyond speaking in tongues. Yes, I did speak in a heavenly language, but it was much more than that. The Holy Spirit became real. He became my friend. He became my companion, my counselor. The first thing I did that morning was to open the Bible. From that moment on, the Bible took on a whole new dimension. I would say, Holy Spirit, show it to me in the Word. I wanted to know why He had come, and He led me to these words. We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. When I asked why he wanted to be my friend, he led me to the words of Paul, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. The Bible became alive. I had never really understood the impact of those words, It's not by my might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Over and over again, he confirmed in the word what he was doing in my life. For more than eight hours that first day, then day after day, I grew to know him more. My prayer life began to change. Now, I said, Holy Spirit, since you know the Father so well, would you help me pray? And when I began to pray, I came to the place where suddenly the Father was more real than he had ever been before. It was as if someone had opened a door and said, Here he is. My teacher, my guide. The reality of the fatherhood of God became clearer than I had ever known. It was not by reading a book or following a formula A, B, C. It was just by asking the Holy Spirit to open the word to me. And he did. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. I began to comprehend everything Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. He was my comforter, my teacher, my guide.
I understood for the first time what Jesus meant when he told his disciples, Follow me. Then one day he said, Don't follow me because where I'm going you can't go. He told them, But the Holy Ghost, He will guide you. He will lead you on. What was He doing? Christ was giving them another leader, another one to follow. My search of the Scriptures went on, day after day, for weeks, until all of my questions were answered. All that time I was getting to know the Holy Spirit better, and that communion has never stopped to this day. I realized He was right here with me, and my entire life has been transformed. I believe yours will be too. Today, as I arose, I said it again. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Chapter 2 From Jaffa to the Ends of the Earth It was December 1952 in Jaffa, Israel. Clements Hinn, about to give birth to her second child, was in the hospital, gazing out the window of her maternity room at the deep blue waters of the Mediterranean. But the heart of this small woman of Armenian descent was troubled. She was torn with bitterness, fear, and shame. Clements wanted someone, somehow, to swoop down and save her from another year of humiliation and disgrace. She was a devout Greek Orthodox woman, but she didn't know much about the Lord. In that humble hospital room, however, she tried to make a bargain with him. Please, Lord, if you'll give me a boy, I'll give him back to you. Jaffa, Six Beautiful Roses The first child born to Costandi and Clements Hinn was a lovely girl named Rose. But in the stubborn culture of the Middle East, and especially in the Hinn ancestral tradition, the firstborn should have been a son and heir. The family of Costandi, immigrants to Palestine from Greece, began to persecute Clements for her failure to produce a boy. But this persecution changed to joy when a boy was born on December 3, 1952. And I was that boy, Benny Hinn. Our family was eventually to have six boys and two girls, but my mother never forgot her bargain with God. She later told me of her dream and that I was the rose she presented to Jesus. I was christened in the Greek Orthodox Church by the Patriarch of Jerusalem, Benedictus. In fact, during the ceremony, he gave me his name. Being born in the Holy Land meant being born in an atmosphere where religion casts an inescapably wide shadow. At the age of two, I was enrolled in a Catholic preschool and was formally trained by nuns and later monks for 14 years. Mayor Hinn. My father was the mayor of Jaffa during my childhood. He was a strong man, about six feet two inches tall, 250 pounds, and a natural leader. He was strong in every way, physically, mentally, and in will. His family came from Greece to Egypt before settling in Palestine, but being from somewhere else was common. The Jaffa of my childhood was truly an international city. Even though my father was not Jewish, the Israeli leaders trusted him, and they were happy to have someone in Jaffa who could relate to such an international community. We were proud of his circle of friends, which included many national leaders. He was asked to be an ambassador for Israel in foreign nations, but chose to stay in Jaffa. 
We lived comfortably. My father's position in government made it possible for us to have a wonderful home in the suburbs that had a wall around it with glass along the top for security. My mother was a homemaker in every sense of the word. Raising that brood of little hens was more than a full-time job. A Catholic Cocoon As my education continued, I considered myself to be a Catholic. The process started very early. The preschool I attended was actually more like a convent. Mass was celebrated regularly. My parents didn't protest because a private Catholic school education was considered to be the best available. Weekdays I studied with the nuns, and on Sunday I went to the Greek Orthodox Church with my parents. Was I a Catholic? Absolutely. Catholicism was my prayer life. It occupied my time and attention five days a week. It became my mentality. I practically lived at the convent, and in that cocoon I became very detached from the world. I was also separated from the world in an unfortunate way. From earliest childhood I was afflicted with a severe stutter. As the schooling continued, I attended the College de Frere, College of Brothers, and was taught by monks. Even as a small boy, I was extremely religious. I prayed, and I prayed probably more than some Christians pray today. But all I knew how to pray was the Hail Mary, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and other prescribed prayers. Only rarely did I really talk to the Lord. When I had some specific request, I mentioned it. Otherwise, my prayer life was all very organized, very routine. Even though virtually no spirituality accompanied the teaching, I still cherish the foundation I received in the Bible. I often think, how many kids are taught the Old Testament in Hebrew? And our field trips literally made God's Word come to life. Once we traveled into the Negev where we stood next to the wells Abraham had dug and learned about him. That experience will stay with me forever. His robe was whiter than white. Several times in my life God has spoken to me in a vision. It happened only once during my years in Jaffa, when I was just a boy of eleven. I really believe it was at that moment that God began moving in my life. I can remember the vision as if it happened yesterday. I saw Jesus walk into my bedroom. He was wearing a robe that was whiter than white, and a deep red mantle was draped over the robe. I saw his hair... I looked into his eyes. I saw the nail prints in his hands. I saw everything. You must understand that I did not know Jesus. I had not asked Christ to come into my heart. But the moment I saw him, I recognized him. I knew it was the Lord. When it happened, I was asleep. But suddenly my little body was caught up in an incredible sensation that can only be described as electric. It felt as if someone had plugged me into a wired socket. There was a numbness that felt like needles, a million of them rushing through my body. And then the Lord stood before me while I was in a deep, deep sleep. He looked straight at me with the most beautiful eyes. He smiled, and his arms were open wide. I could feel his presence. It was marvelous, and I'll never forget it. The Lord didn't say anything to me. He just looked at me. And then he disappeared. Immediately I was wide awake. At the time I could scarcely understand what was happening. But it wasn't a dream. Those kinds of feelings don't happen in a dream.
God allowed me to experience a vision that would create an indelible impression on my young life. As I awakened, the wondrous sensation was still there. I opened my eyes and looked all around. But this intense, powerful feeling was still in me. I felt totally paralyzed. I couldn't move a muscle, not an eyelash. I was completely frozen there. Yet I was in control. This unusual feeling overtook me, but didn't dominate me. In fact, I felt I could say, No, I don't want this, and the experience would have lifted. But I didn't say anything. While I lay there awake, the feeling stayed with me, then slowly went away. In the morning, I told my mother about the experience, and she still remembers her words. She said, You must be a saint then. Of course, I was certainly no saint. But my mother believed that if Jesus came to me, he must be singling me out for a higher calling. While God was dealing with my life, other factors were at work that would forever change the future of our family. The Ends of the Earth From Gaza to the Golan Heights Living in Israel during the 60s, I could feel the escalating political tension. Arab raids into Israel occurred almost daily along the borders from Egypt to Jordan and Syria, and the Israeli army regularly retaliated with raids of their own. I'll never forget the day early in 1968 that my father gathered the family together and told us that he was making plans for us to emigrate. One evening an attaché from the Canadian embassy came to our home and showed us a short movie on life in Canada. Toronto seemed like such a thriving city. The father had two brothers who lived there, but we doubted that they were financially qualified to be our official sponsor. I bargained with God. By that time we were all so anxious to leave that I got down on my knees on that Jerusalem rock and made a vow to God. As a young boy I had come to understand the value and significance of olive oil, so I prayed, Lord, if you will get us out, I'll bring you the biggest jar of olive oil I can find. And I added, When we get to Toronto, I'll bring it to church and present it to you in thanksgiving. Within weeks, a young man from the Canadian Embassy called my father to say, Mr. Hinn, we've worked everything out, don't ask me how. All of your paperwork is in order, and you can leave whenever you're ready. It didn't take long. We sold almost all our possessions and prepared for a new life in North America. It was from the harbor of the ancient city of Joppa, my Jaffa, that Jonah left, and the result was the salvation of Nineveh. Out of the plane window I took one last look down at Tel Aviv, and as we headed over the Mediterranean I looked down and said one last goodbye to Jaffa. There was a lump in my throat. I was fourteen, and it was the only home I had ever known. The Hinn family arrival in Toronto in July 1968 was an unheralded event. That's just the way my father wanted it. Life changed rapidly for me. Instead of attending a private Catholic school, I went to a public high school. One Saturday, I walked into a grocery store and asked the manager, Where can I find the olive oil? I need the largest jug or container of it you have. Sure enough, he found a big one. The next day I walked proudly into the Greek Orthodox Church and made good on my vow to God. I placed it at the front of the altar and quietly said, Thank you, Lord. 
thank you for bringing us safely to our new home. My heart was as full as that jug of oil. I worked at a hamburger kiosk at a mall. Because of my stutter, I didn't get into many conversations, but I did become a pro at packing the ice cream into those sugar cones. I worked with a fellow named Bob. One day he began to witness to me. I thought he would never quit. And when it was over, I was determined to stay as far away from this crazy fellow as I could. Bob finally quit his job at the kiosk, but many of his friends attended my school, and for the next two years I did my best to avoid them. During my senior year, for the second time in my life, I had an encounter with the Lord. He came into my room and visited me this time in the form of an unforgettable dream. As the dream unfolded, I found myself descending a long, dark stairway. It was so steep I thought I would fall, and it was leading me into a deep, endless chasm. I was bound by a chain to a prisoner in front of me and a prisoner behind me. I was dressed in the clothing of a convict. There were chains on my feet and around my wrists. As far as I could see ahead of me and behind me, there was a never-ending line of captives. Suddenly, appearing out of nowhere, was the angel of the Lord. The angel motioned with his hand for me to come to him. Hurriedly, the angel led me through an open doorway, and the moment I walked into the light, the celestial being took me by the hand and dropped me right at the corner of my school. In a second, the angel was gone, and I woke up early and rushed off to school to study in the library before classes began. I could hardly blink. As I sat there, not even thinking about the dream, a small group of students walked over to my table. They were the ones who had been pestering me with all of this Jesus talk. They asked me to join in their morning prayer meeting. All of a sudden, the entire group lifted their hands and began speaking in tongues. What happened next was more than I could ever have imagined. I was startled by a sudden urge to pray, but I really didn't know what to say. But at that moment, I closed my eyes and said four words that changed my life forever. Right out loud, I said, Lord Jesus, come back. I repeated those words again and again. Lord Jesus, come back. Lord Jesus, come back. Suddenly, I saw Jesus with my own eyes. It happened in a moment of time. There he was. Jesus. Five minutes to eight. It was five minutes to eight o'clock in the morning. By this time, I was just sitting there crying. I knew beyond any doubt that something extraordinary had happened that February morning. All day I was wiping the tears from my eyes, and the only thing I could say was, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. As I walked out of the door of the school, the pieces began to fall into place. The angel the dream. It all became real again. What was God trying to tell me? What was happening to Benny? Chapter 3. Tradition. Tradition. I walked into my bedroom, and as if magnetized, I was drawn to that big black Bible. It was the only Bible in our home. My parents didn't even have one. I had no idea where it came from, but it had been mine as long as I could remember. The pages had hardly been turned since our arrival in Canada, but now I prayed, Lord, 
you've got to show me what has happened to me today. I opened the scripture and began to devour it like a starving man. The Holy Spirit became my teacher. I began by reading the Gospels. I found myself saying out loud, Jesus, come into my heart. Please, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. In scripture after scripture, I saw the plan of salvation unfolding. It was as if I had never read the Bible before. Oh, my friend, it was alive. The words bubbled forth from a spring, and I drank freely from it. Finally, at three or four o'clock in the morning, with a quiet peace that I had never known before, I fell asleep. Belonging. The next day at school, I sought out those fanatics and said, Hey, I'd like you to take me to your church. That Thursday night, I found myself in the catacombs. That's what they called it. The service was just like that morning prayer meeting at school. People had their hands lifted, worshiping the Lord. This time, though, I joined right in. Jehovah Jireh, my provider, His grace is sufficient for me. They sang over and over. I liked that song from the first time I heard it and loved it even more when I found out it was written by the pastor's wife, Merla Watson. Her husband, Merv, was the shepherd of this most unusual flock. I looked around. The place was packed with kids just like me. They were jumping up and down, dancing and making a joyful noise before the Lord. It was hard for me to believe that a place like that really existed. But somehow, from that very first night, I felt I belonged. Go up there. At the conclusion of the meeting, Merv Watson said, I want all of you who would like to make a public confession of your sin to step forward. We're going to pray with you as you ask Christ to come into your heart. It was at that moment, at a charismatic service in an Anglican church, that this good little Catholic from a Greek Orthodox home made a public confession of his acceptance of Christ. Jesus, I said, I'm asking you to be the Lord of my life. The Holy Land couldn't compare with this. How much better to be where Jesus was than where he used to be. That night I decided to tell my mother what had happened. I didn't have the courage to tell my father. Mama, I've got to share something with you, I whispered. I've been saved. In a flash, her jaw was set. She glared and said crisply, Saved from what? Trust me, I said. You'll understand. That day I found Bob, my weird friend who had once plastered the kiosk walls with Scripture. I shared just a little about what had happened that week, and I told him that I even saw myself preaching. Bob, I said, all day long it's been like this. I can't shake the picture of me speaking in huge open-air rallies, in stadiums, in churches, in concert halls. Beginning to stutter, I told him, I see people... As far as the eye can see, I must be losing my mind. What do you think it means? There can only be one thing, he told me. God is preparing you for a great ministry. I think it's wonderful. Cast out. I didn't get that kind of encouragement at home. Of course, I really couldn't tell them what the Lord was doing. Situation was dreadful. Humiliation and shame. My entire family began to harass and ridicule me. 
Now they treated me with disdain, like an intruder who didn't belong. Tradition, tradition, says the song in Fiddler on the Roof. If an Easterner breaks tradition, he has committed an unpardonable sin. I doubt that the West will ever truly understand its seriousness. He brings humiliation upon his family, and that can't be forgiven. The family told me, Benny, you're ruining our family name. They pleaded with me not to dishonor their reputation. My father had been a mayor, and he reminded me of it. The family name was at stake. It became obvious that if I was to remain in my own home, I would have to close the door to conversations about Christ. Nothing, however, could dampen the fire of my newfound faith. I was like a glowing ember that never stopped burning. Early in the morning, my big Bible was open. The Holy Spirit continued to reveal the Word, but that was not enough. Every night that I could escape the house, I was in a church service, youth fellowship, or prayer meeting. And on Thursday nights, I was back at the catacombs. I can never erase from my memory the day I mentioned Jesus in our home. My father walked over to me and slapped my face. I felt the pain. No, it wasn't the Jerusalem rock this time. It was a different kind of pain. But the hurt I felt was for my family. I loved them so much and agonized for their salvation. They flew my grandmother over from Israel just to tell me I was crazy. You're an embarrassment to the family name, she said. Don't you understand the shame you're causing? My father made an appointment for me to see a psychiatrist. Evidently, my father thought I had lost my mind. And what was the doctor's conclusion? Maybe your son is going through something. He'll come out of it. For the next year, nearly two, my father and I had almost no communication. At the dinner table, he wouldn't look at me. I was totally ignored. It finally became unbearable even to sit down and watch the evening news with my family. So, what did I do? I stayed in my room. But looking back on it, I can see that the Lord knew exactly what He was doing. I spent hundreds of hours, thousands, alone with God. My Bible was always open. I prayed, I studied, I worshipped. I feasted on heavenly manna that I would need in the years to come. I must obey the Lord. Getting to church was a gigantic problem. How I longed to go, but my father said, Absolutely not time and time again. In fact, those were practically the only conversations we had, arguments about the house of the Lord. Little by little, he began to give in. He knew it was a losing battle. The catacombs rented another building for services on Sunday, and I was right there. Bible studies were on Tuesday and Friday, and a youth meeting on Saturday night. These meetings became my whole life. In the two years after my conversion, my spiritual growth was like a rocket moving into orbit. By the end of 1973, Merv and Merla Watson were inviting me to join them on the platform to help lead in worship and singing. But I couldn't speak in public. Jim Pointer, the spirit-filled free Methodist pastor, had seen me there, and one day he stopped by the kiosk at the mall just to talk about the things of the Lord. That's when he invited me to go with him to the Kuhlman meeting in Pittsburgh. My personal encounter with the Holy Spirit after that meeting was awesome. 
but it took a few days for me to realize the dimensions of God's revelation to me. Once Jim Pointer called to say, I want to pick you up and take you to a Methodist church where I'm singing. You can sing with me if you'd like. I wasn't really a singer, but I helped him out once in a while. Then I heard Jim honking the horn. As I ran down the stairs into the car, I actually felt the Lord's presence running with me. The moment I jumped into the front seat and shut the door, Jim began to weep. He began to sing that chorus, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. He turned to me and said, Benny, I can feel the Holy Spirit in this car. Of course his presence is in this car, I said. Where else would it be? To me, it had become the norm. But Jim could hardly drive. He continued to weep before the Lord. Henry, Mary, Sammy, and Willie. Now even members of my family were asking questions. The Spirit of the Lord so permeated our home that my brothers and sisters began to develop a spiritual hunger. My sister Mary gave her heart to the Lord, and within the next few months my little brother Sammy got saved. Then came Willie. All I could do was to shout, Hallelujah! It was happening and I had not even begun to preach. By this time, my father was nearly ready for an asylum, but there was no question that my mother and father could see the transformation that had already taken place in me, in two of my brothers, and in Mary. The year of 1974 unleashed a never-ending flow of God's power on my life. I'd just say, Good morning, Holy Spirit, and it would start all over again. The glory of the Lord stayed with me. One day in April, the Lord spoke to me in an audible voice. He said, Preach the gospel. My response, of course, was, But Lord, I can't talk. Two nights later, the Lord gave me a second dream. I saw an angel. He had a chain in his hand attached to a door that seemed to fill the whole heaven. He pulled it open, and there were people as far as the eye could see, souls. They were all moving toward a large, deep valley, and the valley was a roaring inferno of fire. It was frightening. I saw thousands of people falling into that fire. Those on the front lines were trying to fight it, but the crush of humanity behind them pushed them into the flames. Again the Lord spoke to me. Very clearly he said, If you do not preach... Everyone who falls will be your responsibility. I knew instantly that everything that happened in my life was for one purpose, to preach the gospel. It happened in Oshawa. Finally, in November 1974, I couldn't avoid the subject any longer. I said to the Lord, I will preach the gospel on one condition that you will be with me in every service. And then I reminded him, Lord, you know that I can't talk. I worried continually about my speech problem and the fact that I was going to embarrass myself. It was impossible, however, to erase from my mind the picture of a burning man and the sound of the Lord saying, If you do not preach, everyone who falls will be your responsibility. Then, one afternoon, the first week of December, I was sitting in the home of Stan and Shirley Phillips in Oshawa, about 30 miles east of Toronto. Can I tell you something? I asked. 
Then I poured out my heart about things only the Lord and I knew about. Stanley stopped me and said, Benny, tonight you must come to our church and share this. So on December 7th, 1974, for the first time in my life, I stood behind a pulpit to preach. The instant I opened my mouth, I felt something touch my tongue and loosen it. It felt like a little numbness, and I began to proclaim God's Word with absolute fluency. Here's what was amazing. God didn't heal me when I was sitting in the audience. He didn't heal me when I was walking up to the platform. He didn't heal me when I stood behind the pulpit. God performed the miracle when I opened my mouth. I knew I was healed, and my ministry began to mushroom. It seemed as if every day I was invited to a church or fellowship group to minister. I knew I was in the perfect center of God's will. I'm going to die. For the next five months I was a preacher, but my mother and father had no inkling. In the Toronto Star in April 1975, a newspaper ad with my picture in it appeared. I was preaching at a little Pentecostal church on the west side of town, and the pastor wanted to attract some visitors. It worked. Castandi and Clements saw the ad. I was sitting on the platform that Sunday night. During the song service, I looked up and could hardly believe my eyes. There were my mother and my father being ushered to a seat just a few rows in front of the platform. I thought, this is it. I'm going to die. My good friend Jim Pointer was seated on the platform next to me. I turned to him and said, Pray, Jim, pray. He was shocked when I told him mother and father were there. A thousand thoughts flashed through my mind, not the least of which was, Lord, I'll know I'm really healed if I don't stutter tonight. I can't remember another time that I was so nervous during a service and anxiety always made me stutter. As I began to preach, the power of God's presence began to flow through me. But I couldn't bring myself to look in the direction of my parents, not even for a fleeting glance. All I knew was that my concern about stuttering was needless. When God healed me, the healing was permanent. As the meeting was ending, my parents got up and walked out the back door. After the service, I said to Jim, You've got to pray. Do you realize that in the next few hours my destiny will be decided? I may have to sleep at your house tonight. That night I drove aimlessly around Toronto. I wanted to wait until at least two in the morning to get home. By that time I knew my parents would be in bed. I really didn't want to face them. But more about that later. Chapter 4 Person to Person Are you ready to meet the Holy Spirit intimately and personally? What I am about to share with you began the moment the Holy Spirit entered my room in December 1973, and it has never stopped. Here is the only difference. I know Him infinitely better today than I did when we first met. What I want you to know is this. Beyond salvation, beyond being baptized in water, beyond the infilling of the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity is waiting for you to meet Him personally. He yearns for a lifelong relationship. And that is what you are about to discover. Drawn into Fellowship you learn volumes about people when you meet them in person. When the Holy Spirit and I met, 
that is what began to happen. I began to discover things about his personality that changed me as a Christian. Salvation transformed me as a person, but the Spirit had a tremendous effect on my Christian walk. The Lord used a Catherine Kuhlman meeting to prepare me for what was about to happen, but never once did Miss Kuhlman sit with me and tell me about the Holy Spirit. Everything I learned was from Him, and that's why it's fresh, why it's new, and why it's mine. When I returned home from that meeting in Pittsburgh, I fell to my knees. I was honest and transparent when I said, Precious Holy Spirit, I want to know you. I will never forget how nervous I was, but from that day I have grown to know him like a brother. Truly, he is a member of the family. Who he is? You ask, Who is the Holy Spirit? I want you to know he is the most beautiful, most precious, loveliest person on the earth. God the Son is not on the earth. God the Father is not on the earth. They are both in heaven this very moment. Who is on earth? God the Holy Spirit. For God the Father came to do his work through the Son who was resurrected. When God the Son departed, God the Holy Spirit came, and he is still here doing his work. But when God the Holy Spirit leaves, which many believe is going to happen very soon, he's going to take the redeemed of the Lord with him. It is called the rapture. We will be caught up with him to meet the Lord in the air. Who is this Holy Spirit? I learned that he is not only real, but that he has a personality. What's on the inside? What makes me a person? Is it my physical body? I think not. People who watch me preach are not looking at Benny Hinn. They are only seeing my body. I am inside my physical body. It is the person inside who is important. The Holy Spirit is a person. But exactly who is he? The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God the Father and the Spirit of God the Son. He is the power of the Godhead, the power of the Trinity. What is his job? To understand the job of the Holy Spirit, we need to understand the work of the Father and the Son. God the Father is the one who gives the command. He has always been the one who says, Let there be. From the beginning it has been God who gives the orders. On the other hand, it is God the Son who performs the commands of the Father. When God the Father said, Let there be light, God the Son came and performed it. Then God the Holy Spirit brought the light. Let me illustrate it this way. If I asked you, please, uh, turn on the light, three forces would be involved. First, I would be the one who gave the command. Second, you would be the one who walks to the switch and flips it. In other words, you are the performer of the command. But finally, who brings on the light? It's not me, and it's not you. It's the power of the electricity that produces the light. I've been asked, Benny, aren't you forgetting the importance of Christ in all of this? Never. How could I forget the one who loved and died for me? But some people are so focused on the Son that they forget the Father, the one who loved them and sent his Son. I cannot forget the Father nor the Son. 
but I cannot be in touch with the Father and the Son without the Holy Spirit. See Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. Fellowship. During one of my first encounters with the Holy Spirit, I had an experience that moved me to tears. Just as simply as I am talking to you, I asked him, What am I supposed to do with you? Would you please tell me what you're like? Here's the answer the Holy Spirit gave. I am the one who fellowships with you. And like the snap of a finger, that verse flashed before me. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. Immediately, my entire approach to prayer changed. From that moment on, I had a personal friend who helped me speak to the Father in Jesus' name. He literally guided me to my knees and made it easy to communicate with the Father. What a fellowship! That is what the Holy Spirit longs for, your fellowship. Remember, there are no selfish requests in fellowship, just friendship, love, and communion. That's how it was with me. I began to wait for the Holy Spirit before I prayed. I would say, Precious Holy Spirit, would you now come and help me to pray? And here is the next principle I learned. The Holy Spirit is the only teacher of the Bible. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Accompanied by the Spirit. From my first encounter with the Holy Spirit, I began to know that He was the great teacher, the one who would lead me into all truth. That is why I asked him, Would you please tell me what this scripture means? But I still wanted to know, Who are you? And why are you so different? I would say, I'd like to know what you are like. Gentle yet powerful. Here is what I saw. What he revealed to me was a mighty person and a childlike person at the same time. He said to me, when you hurt a child, he will stay away from you. When you love a child, he will be very close to you. And that is how I began to approach him. I felt that he was gentle, and yet he is mighty and powerful. Like a child, however, he wants to stay ever so close to those who love him. How was it possible that the great evangelist Charles Finney could preach the gospel and people could be slain under the power confessing their sins? What was the power that fell when John Wesley stood on the tombstones and opened his mouth to preach? It was the person of the Holy Spirit that accompanied their ministry. Who is the Holy Spirit? He is the power of the Lord. Do you recognize that voice? When Jesus was on the earth and the disciples had a problem, to whom did they turn? They went to the Son and asked, What should we do? And he instructed them, but when Christ returned to the Father, they were not left alone. Jesus said to them, The Holy Spirit will guide you. He will comfort you. He will counsel you and will remind you of things I have told you. 
he will tell you about me. Peter and John were now saying, Wonderful Holy Spirit. Paul spoke of his fellowship. The person of the Holy Spirit is distinct in the Godhead, and he doesn't speak to you until you speak to him. How long will he wait? Until you speak to him. He will just wait and wait and wait. My friend, you will never know his power, you will never know his presence until you go and sit beside him and say, Wonderful Holy Spirit, tell me all about Jesus. The High Cost of Lying The experience of Ananias and Sapphira makes clear what will happen to people who disregard the Spirit. The couple sold a piece of property and only gave a small portion of what belonged to God. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Acts chapter 5 verse 3. Ananias died instantly. A few hours later his wife rushed up and Peter asked, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Acts chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. Sin against the Spirit is dangerous. If you don't understand the works of the Spirit, don't talk about them. It is better to keep quiet. In my own services, I pray that everything I do will be in His perfect will. The Holy Spirit is the one who called me, and He is the one who controls my meetings. In other words, He's the boss of the service. You need to ask Him to take charge of your life, too. Paul told us to walk in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, pray in the Spirit. Peter and Philip spoke to Him, and so did Christ. You ask, how do I begin? It's really very simple. You might start by saying, Holy Spirit, help me pray now. That's exactly what he wants you to do. The Bible says he prays for you with groanings that cannot be uttered. And when you begin, you will feel your burden being lifted. You'll have a prayer partner who will lead you straight to the throne of God. The Holy Spirit is waiting. He wants you to begin a new relationship, person to person. Chapter 5 Whose voice do you hear? Benny, I want you to stop talking about Jesus in this house, do you understand? I can never forget the angry voice of my father, who was infuriated by my conversion. And after my encounter with the Holy Spirit, his wrath grew even worse. But I began to hear another voice. It was the sound of the Spirit, and he gave me a love for my father that surpassed anything I had known as a child or as a teen. No matter what my father said, I could just look at him with total peace, and it seemed that the more angry he became, the more love the Spirit gave me. Three things happened when the Holy Spirit entered my life. First, the Word of the living God became absolute life to me. Second, my prayer life changed completely. The Holy Spirit and I were in conversation. And third, he transformed my daily Christian life. I actually began to sing, 
singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. What began to happen to me was not natural. It was supernatural. The Spirit had taken over. His voice. How are you led by the Spirit? You become familiar with His voice. You recognize it, you respond to it, and the more you fellowship with Him, the deeper the relationship becomes. From the beginning of time, God made the person and the power of the Holy Spirit clear. In fact, the Holy Spirit is the first manifestation of the Godhead in Scripture, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The breath of God is the Holy Ghost. Here is how Job described it. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Job chapter 33, verse 4. How did God speak to Moses? Through an angel. In the New Testament, there were only three times that God actually spoke. First, he spoke of Jesus, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. Then Jesus himself asked the Father to glorify your name. And here is what happened. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. John chapter 12, verse 28. The crowd who heard it said it had thundered. Verse 29. The only other time God spoke directly was when the clouds surrounded the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. Again, the voice of God produced an awesome result. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Verses 6 through 8. You say, Benny, I thought God spoke throughout the word. Exactly right. But the one who was speaking was the Holy Ghost. The prophet writes, says the Lord. But to understand the true source of that scripture, you need to read it in the book of Hebrews. The Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 15 and 16. Who said it? The Holy Spirit. Not only did he witness it, but Scripture reveals that he had said before, verse 15. Who is Jehovah? A profound change took place in my spiritual life when I realized that the Holy Ghost was God. Millions of people, and I was among them, are somehow brought up to believe that he is less equal. We are somehow indoctrinated that because he comes third, he is not really God. Let me say it again. The Holy Spirit is God, equal in majesty, power, glory, and eternity. He is God. What did Jesus say about the Spirit? He said that when he comes, he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. John chapter 16, verse 13. What does he hear? 
the precious Holy Spirit hears the Father and speaks directly to you. But when He speaks, He doesn't say, The Father says. He says, I say. Why? Because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit always act in harmony. It is so easy to limit the Godhead or to divide the Godhead unscripturally. Young Christians often ask, how can God be one and three at the same time? God is one. But God is three, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And while this tape dwells on the Holy Spirit, I am distinguishing them on purpose to show you the triune being. And so it is with the Trinity. The Father is like the whole. God is like the sun in the sky. If you look at its brightness, you see one sun. In reality, however, it is a triune sun that keeps our planet alive. There are three distinct elements, the sun, light, and heat. And so it is with the Trinity. The Father is the sun, Jesus is the light, and the Holy Ghost is the heat you feel. When you stand in the presence of the Father, what do you feel? The warmth, the energy, and power of the Holy Spirit. If you look into the face of the Father, whom do you see? He who has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus said to Philip. John chapter 14, verse 9. I get excited when I think about the time I enter heaven. The Godhead will be there. When I stand before the Father, I will see all three, the Spirit, the Son, and God himself. What does God look like? There's not one place in the Word of God where the Father is described in detail. Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Acts chapter 7, verse 55. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent, but unfortunately liberty and freedom are not found everywhere. Some churches feel more like a hostile prison than a house of praise. Why? Because the Spirit is not Lord in that congregation. Never forget it. The Lord is the Spirit. Following His voice. From the moment of my first encounter with the Spirit, I knew I must follow His voice. There were only two options. Either I could follow the sound of a carnal, fleshly world, or I could follow Him. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. It's as basic as life itself. If you desire the flesh, you will follow the flesh. But if your heart yearns for the Spirit, you will be drawn to Him like a magnet. Paul tells you to walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Your conscience confirms it. How does the Holy Spirit speak? He witnesses to your very conscience. In Paul's letter to the church at Rome, he says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. You should never doubt the leading of the Holy Spirit. At a time when your inner man is troubled, don't move. If you attempt to be your own guide, you'll literally collapse. 
Listen to his voice as he speaks to your very soul. If you truly want to understand how the Holy Spirit speaks, read and reread these profound words. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. How do we know it is true? His Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Again, you know that you know. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. What does the Scripture mean when it talks about communion? First, the word communion means presence. God, the Father's desire for you, is that the sweet presence of the Holy Spirit will be with you. Second, it means fellowship. You do not need to pray to the Holy Spirit. You simply fellowship with Him. The third meaning is sharing together. You pour out your heart, and He pours out His. Fourth, communion means participation with. The Holy Spirit becomes your partner. Fifth, it means intimacy. You'll never experience a deep love with Christ until you know it with the Holy Spirit who brings that intimacy. Sixth, the word means friendship. The Spirit longs to be your closest friend, someone with whom you can share the deepest secrets of your heart. And seventh, communion means comradeship. In Greek, the word means commander. He's like a captain, a ruler, or a boss, but a loving, friendly one. When I began my fellowship with the Holy Spirit, I talked with Him day and night. Not a day passed that I did not say, Holy Spirit, precious Holy Spirit, and we began our time of prayer and communication. Oh, the sound of His voice. Chapter 6 Spirit, Soul, and Body Satan, the great deceiver, has done an incredible job. He has convinced the world, even dedicated ministers of the gospel, that the Holy Spirit is nothing more than an influence or a special power. This deception is a priority of Satan because he knows that the moment you discover the personality and reality of the Spirit, your life will be dramatically transformed. Every great revival was accompanied by a revelation of the Holy Spirit. Even Martin Luther credits the Great Reformation to the work of the Spirit. The fact that you are hearing these words, however, tells me that you have a personal hunger to know the Holy Spirit. The Godhead What I am about to share with you regarding the Godhead gave me an entirely new picture of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I found that God is eternal spirit, yet with non-material form. What about the appearance of God? When Ezekiel had his vision of God in 593 B.C., he saw the likeness of a throne in appearance like a sapphire stone with the appearance of a man high above it. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26. What was the appearance of God the Father? Like that of a man. God also has a heart. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. Now, let's look at the Son. Before the Lord Jesus came to earth, He, with God the Father, had only an immaterial form. His earthly body of flesh, blood, and bone was given Him when He was born as a babe in Bethlehem, and like you, He grew to be a man. 
and his glorified human body is distinct from the divine form of God the Father. The Bible makes it clear that Jesus, part of the Godhead, has a soul. At Gethsemane, before the crucifixion, he said to his disciples, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Mark chapter 14, verse 34. Today, Christ in his resurrected body sits at the right hand of God the Father. But what about the Holy Spirit? Does he also have a mind, a will, and emotions? Does he have a spirit body? He certainly does. It's a subject that most ministers are afraid to discuss, but I have experienced the person of the Holy Ghost. Without question, we all agree he is a spirit. That's part of his name. But what about his inner being? Is he really a person? First, the Holy Spirit has a mind of his own. The mind of the Spirit is distinct from that of the Father and the Son. He also has emotions. He has deep feelings that allow him to grieve and to love. Can you imagine loving without emotion? What about the will of the Holy Spirit? Perhaps you have never considered it possible for the Holy Spirit to decide separately from the Father and the Son. He certainly can, but always in harmony with the Godhead. It is the question of the body of the Holy Spirit that causes much confusion. Many believe that the Holy Spirit is embodied in a dove because that was the form in which he descended from heaven following the baptism of Jesus. The heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. However, this is only a representation of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was presented as a lamb in Revelation, and the Holy Ghost was seen as seven lamps of blazing fire in Revelation. His descent as a beautiful dove does not mean that he flies around in heaven like a dove, nor does Jesus walk around heaven with the body of a lamb. A lamb, a dove, a lamp. These are all symbols, not physical forms or bodies. Again, the Holy Spirit is not a heavenly breeze or a hazy cloud floating in and out of your life. He is God, and He resides in us equal with the Father and the Son in the Trinity. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, said, Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. He is saying that the Spirit lives in God's temple. We are that temple, and the Father and the Spirit are equal in us. The Holy Spirit is not simply a person distinct from the Father and distinct from the Son. He is much more. He's not only God, but Scripture gives Him a place co-equal with God and Christ. First, we find that the Holy Ghost is omnipresent. In other words, He can be at all places at the same time. Spirits are not omnipresent, but the Holy Ghost is. But not only is he omnipresent, the Holy Spirit is omnipotent, all-powerful. The angel said to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The Holy Spirit is also omniscient. He's all-knowing. I get excited when I read the words, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God 
except the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9-11 through 11. Think about it. The Holy Ghost actually searches the mind of God. He finds what's there and presents it to you. There's something you need to know about Satan. He cannot read your mind. Angels can't read your mind, and the devil is an angel. If he could read your mind, he would be an all-knowing spirit. But that place is reserved for the Father and the Holy Ghost. Satan cannot read your mind. Here is an important question I must ask. If the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, if he is omnipotent, if he is omniscient, should we worship him as God? If he is all the things we've been discussing, equal with the Father and the Son, then he is to be worshipped. After all, don't we worship the Father and don't we worship the Son? You may wonder, how should the Holy Spirit be worshipped? Well, how do you worship God the Father? And how do you worship the Son? There should be no difference. Since my first encounter with the Holy Spirit, I have experienced a growing reality of His presence. Every scripture, every encounter, and every revelation makes my walk in the Spirit more complete. Recently, during a time of study in the Word, I said to my wife, You know, I feel the presence of God all over me. Here's what touched me that night while I was tracing the meanings of words and their connection with the Spirit. I was wondering, what does it really mean to grieve the Spirit? I traced the words grief and grieved in the original Greek. The root word is lupa, and here is what it means. To feel pain in body and mind. It means to suffer mental and physical anguish. The Holy Ghost is spirit body, or Paul would not have said, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. The Holy Ghost doesn't just hurt. Hurt operates at the level of the emotions. He grieves, and that goes much deeper. You also need to realize that the Holy Spirit can be afflicted and tormented. He can be vexed. Isaiah talked about the loving kindness of the Lord and His mercy toward Israel. But they rebelled and vexed His Holy Spirit. Therefore He was turned to be their enemy, and He fought against them. Isaiah, chapter 63, verse 10. It's difficult to imagine, but it's true. The Holy Ghost can be tormented by human beings. In the original language, to vex carries the meaning of wearing down, troubling, even afflicting. Only a person can become the target of such torments. I can still hear Catherine Kuhlman in Pittsburgh sobbing with such agony. Please, don't wound him. He's all I've got. Chapter 7. Wind for Your Sails If you ever see a drunk man on the same side of the road, cross over to the other side. That's the advice my father gave the Hin kids when I was growing up in the Holy Land. The Apostle Paul could not have been more blunt when he said, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Drunkenness, Paul warns, brings ungodly actions. But if a man or a woman can be controlled by alcohol, how much more can the Holy Spirit control a man or a woman? But what about the person who has had an encounter with the Holy Spirit? Just after he says, be filled with the Spirit, 
Paul describes four distinct results you can expect. The first manifestation you can expect of a Spirit-filled life is this. Your speech will be different. Here's the second sign Paul says you should expect. You'll have a new song. The third manifestation is that you'll start giving thanks. The fourth obvious sign is that you'll become a servant. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? The words be filled in Ephesians in the Greek tell you that the filling of the Spirit is a continuing experience. You move forward with the never-ending breeze of the Spirit filling your spiritual sails. You don't have to see the Holy Spirit to know that He is alive. You can feel the evidence in the power He gives you. Once He fills you, seeking a confirmation is an exercise in futility. A man once asked Benny, tell me, Am I filled with the Spirit? I said, Brother, if you don't know, then you're not. You don't have to ask when you see the results. Those who question their infilling have never received it. The Holy Spirit is present from the moment you ask the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive your sin and cleanse your heart. If you do not believe that, you don't understand the Trinity. As Paul wrote to Titus, he saved us through the washing of, regeneration, and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Titus chapter 3, verses 5-7 through 7. You may ask, how should I approach the Spirit? How can I become ready to receive Him? Perhaps I should ask you a question or two. Is your ship ready to sail? Is it seaworthy? Have you mended the sails? Are they ready to receive the wind of the Spirit when He begins to breathe on you? Like the sail on a vessel, you must be flexible and yield, actually surrender to a new infilling of love. The moment you surrender to the Lord, He will fill you with His Spirit. What happens to a marriage when one partner ignores the other? After a short period of time, bitterness begins to enter the heart. Words begin to cut like a sharp knife. Soon the animosity turns to anger, jealousy, and even worse. For many, it results in separation, divorce, and hatred. But the rift can so easily be mended. All it takes is a fresh surrender that comes from your very soul and a renewing of the vow to love, honor, and cherish. The same thing will happen if you neglect the Lord. Don't let a day go by without a fresh surrender to the Lord. Paul wrote, Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. In a church near Toronto, I remember seeing a young man praying to receive the infilling of the Spirit. I'll never forget the strained and tense look on his face. He was literally begging and begging for an encounter with the Holy Spirit. I walked over to him and said, Young man, you won't get anything by begging. Just relax. It's so easy when you surrender. That's what he did. And almost instantly the Spirit came upon him. It was beautiful. A smile came over his face as he began to pray in a heavenly language. And that's the way it is with surrender. It comes instinctively to a yielded heart. When you met your mate for life, you didn't try to fall in love. It's something that is either there or not. 
you don't have to work at it because love surrenders. When Jesus is your Lord, when you love him with all your heart, it's not difficult to surrender to him. It's the same with the Holy Spirit. Every day when you present yourself to him, he fills you again. You remain fresh as a flower in the morning sun. He continues to give you life, and the blossoms never seem to fade. There are seven distinct steps to prayer. The first step is confession. Begin by acknowledging who God is. Abram called him the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. Genesis chapter 14, verse 22. The next level of prayer is supplication. Simply, let your request be made known to the Lord. The third step, and one that I dearly love, is adoration. It should be a time of absolute beauty and worship, loving Him. Fourth, there is a time of intimacy. It is almost too loving, too sacred, too beautiful to describe. The fifth level of prayer is intercession. The Spirit has placed the names and faces of people before me that I had not thought of in years, and I interceded in prayer for them. The sixth step in prayer is thanksgiving. As Paul wrote, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57. I always spend time giving thanks to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Finally, Step seven in prayer is praise. Sometimes I sing. Sometimes I speak in a spirit language. But from the depths of my being, I burst forth into total praise. There is no substitute for the filling of the Spirit that comes as a direct result of your prayer life. It is the power that will affect everything you do. Recently, I was invited to speak in Columbia, South America. It was a three-day crusade, and on the evening of the second day, Wednesday, I was speaking on the Holy Spirit. In the middle of my message, I felt the power of the Holy Spirit move over the service. I felt His presence, stopped preaching, and told the people, He's here. Ministers on the platform and people in the audience felt the same thing. It was like a gust of wind that entered and swirled inside that place. People stood to their feet in a spontaneous outburst of praise, but they didn't stand long. All over, people began to collapse and fall to the floor under the power of the Holy Ghost. They were slain in the Spirit. It's as if the Holy Spirit had honored the service because he was such a welcomed guest. Chapter 8. A Mighty Entrance How could it be? I had just given my life to the Lord, and I was struggling to live the Christian life. Certainly there were great moments of joy and exhilaration, but deep inside there was a gnawing question that haunted me month after month. Is that all there is? I wondered. The question would not go away. Doesn't the Lord have something more for me? And then, in the middle of a cold December night, nearly two years after I met Christ, it happened. As I lay on my bed in Toronto, the Holy Spirit made a mighty entrance into my room. It felt like a jolt of electricity and a blanket of warmth all at once. It took me only a few days to realize the significance of what had happened. My struggle was over. I had found the simplicity of the Christian life, a personal relationship with the Holy Ghost. He's the one who helps us with the struggle. 
Millions of people are in a daily fight to keep the laws of God, and they are losing the war because they do not understand the Father's battle plan. His strategy could not be more succinct. I will put my spirit within you, says the Lord. And why is that his agenda? He wants to cause you from deep inside your heart to follow his statutes. He wants to make it easy to keep his laws. Do you find it tough to keep God's commandments? Don't feel all alone. It's totally impossible to succeed by yourself. And God doesn't expect you to. You need help. But to whom should you turn? God the Father is in heaven, and so is God the Son. You need a friend here and now, and the person of the Trinity that is dwelling on earth is the Holy Spirit. He's the one you desperately need to know. Just as real as the coming of Jesus to earth, so was the coming of the Holy Ghost. Just as the prophets predicted the Messiah, so did they foretell the coming of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit came, and what a mighty entrance! The sound of a thunderous wind, tongues of fire, a demonstration of God's power. His arrival on earth was nothing short of spectacular. His thunderous coming was not scheduled for a temple made of stone. Instead, the Holy Spirit came upon 120 believers who became the new temple of God. It is precisely for this purpose that the Lord gathered 120 at Pentecost, so that God, the Holy Spirit, could be released among the nations. It marked the beginning of the age of the Spirit. Observers couldn't understand what was happening. Some made fun of them and said, They are full of new wine. Acts chapter 2, verse 13. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Verses 14 through 16. The 120 were so filled with the Spirit that they could not stand under their own power. The Spirit was so mighty that He took control over the actions of the believers. He was at work changing their speech, their emotions, and their behavior. What Jerusalem witnessed was not drunkenness, but the incredible joy that comes when the Spirit takes control. The power and authority the apostles received began to touch lives at every turn. Their ministry was followed by many signs and wonders among the people. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. And what was the result? Believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Verse 14. The signs that followed the coming of the Holy Spirit led people directly to Christ. That's an important fact to remember. What happened in the upper room was not a one-time experience, nor a footnote of history. The Spirit-filled believers established an ongoing relationship with the Holy Ghost. They continued to be filled. Peter the Mighty was no longer Peter the Meek, who a few weeks before had denied his Master, but was now telling the priests they had rejected their Jesus. What a change the Spirit made! I can tell you from personal experience that there comes a point where fellowship of the Spirit becomes so real, 
so deep and so great that your words and actions conform to his words and actions. When you know, for example, that he has been grieved, you can speak boldly on his behalf, knowing he is flowing through you at that very moment. You will be so near to him that you will actually feel him responding to what you have said. I believe the day is approaching when men and women of God will become so close to the Spirit of God that we will witness much more than healings and miracles. We will witness the Spirit as He scatters those who dare to fight Him. I am convinced there is a point in your relationship with the Spirit when the anointing becomes so heavy on you, His presence so close to you, that you can look up and see a vision of God. That's how real He can become. I can only imagine what would happen if, for instance, every minister in the land were to fall prostrate and seek a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. Talk about revival! I believe it would so revolutionize the church world that the sanctuaries could not begin to accommodate the people. People today are looking for reality. They want to know and serve a God who is alive. They need to know and understand the operation of the Holy Spirit and have a personal relationship with Him. People are starving for a reality that only the Holy Spirit makes possible. Thank God for pastors who know the ways of the Spirit and have introduced their congregations to Him. From the moment of Pentecost, the Spirit began His work on earth, and it has never stopped. Never. The Holy Spirit is an active person. He never stops working. He'll even send an angel to you if that is what you have need of. What happens on earth is the Spirit's doing. He's the representative of the Father and the Son. The Spirit is a person, and He's deeply concerned about people. He knows what is happening in your life and has great concern for you. Elymas was a Jewish sorcerer and a magician. He tried to stop what the power of God was doing on Cyprus. But Saul, who also was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at Elymas and said, O oh, full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? Acts chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. The Spirit was so strong on Paul that he told the sorcerer he would become blind, and he did. But as a direct result, people began turning to Christ, and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. Acts chapter 13, verse 49. You ask, should I allow the Holy Spirit to make all the decisions? After all, didn't God give me a mind of my own? Of course He did. But what makes sense to you should also make sense to the Spirit. The church council at Jerusalem wrote, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Acts chapter 15, verse 28. When it is right, it will be confirmed by the Holy Ghost, and you will know the direction to take. The Holy Spirit longs for a daily, ongoing personal relationship with you. He wants to make an entrance, a mighty entrance, into your life. Chapter 9 Room for the Spirit Without a doubt, the most overlooked message of the church today is that the Holy Spirit is real and we must make a place for Him. Ministers of the Gospel have been led to believe that the Spirit is a minor member of the Godhead who came at Pentecost and has been floating in the clouds ever since. 
Many actually avoid speaking his name lest people confuse them with one of those off-the-wall charismatics which brings up the question, if the Holy Spirit was sent to give Christians power to live a victorious life, why are so many despondent and defeated? What's wrong? Why is it that the early church had such power and we have so little of it? With one word they commanded demons to depart, and we seem so fearful and alarmed. Just mention demons and Christians do the hundred-yard dash. Many pastors won't even talk about them, as if ignoring the topic would drive them out. Here's the only conclusion I've been able to reach. The reason the church and so many people in it have become so defeated is that it has ignored the most powerful person in the universe, the Holy Spirit. Again, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. And the next words are just as exciting. Who are you, O great mountain? You shall become a plain. Verse 7. God, throughout His Word, gives a prescription for breaking the yoke of bondage. He knows exactly what it takes to lift your heavy burden. It is called the anointing. It shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 27. During my ministry in Canada, we were one of the sponsoring groups of a Billy Graham crusade. The preparations for the meetings were as organized as anything I've ever seen, and the services themselves were tame compared to what I was used to. But when Dr. Graham began to speak, there was an unmistakable touch of the Spirit on his message. The content was Christ. But I could tell I was in the presence of a man who has a deep, personal fellowship with the Spirit. What made the difference? My friend, it was the anointing. If you want the anointing of the Spirit to become evident in your life, it begins with an understanding of who He is, how He operates, and how you can enter into His fellowship. The Holy Spirit was not sent just to make you feel good. He'll certainly do that, but He is much more. He has equality in the Godhead and deserves our worship, just as do God the Father and God the Son. But that is just the start. Your spiritual growth is not different from that of a giant oak tree. It must be fed and nourished. That only comes with a personal, deeply private encounter with the Spirit, and it continues and grows with a fellowship and communion that only you can establish. Picture, if you will, God the Father sitting on His throne in heaven, and Jesus on earth healing the sick and performing miracles. And what about the Holy Ghost? He's the channel, the contact between both personalities. Now, the Father picks up the phone, as if he needed one, and says, Holy Spirit? Yes, sir, says the Spirit as he picks up the receiver. God says, I want you to lead Jesus into the wilderness because I'm going to send the devil to test him. The Spirit says, yes, sir, and rushes to Christ. Jesus, come along with me, he says. Do you see how the Holy Spirit is the contact between both personalities? Here is what is vital for you to remember. On earth, Jesus was nothing less than a total man. He did not have revelation knowledge without the voice of the Spirit, and he could not move 
unless the Holy Spirit moved him. Even before Christ faced Golgotha, he offered himself to the Father through the Holy Ghost. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 states, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Had he not offered himself through the Holy Ghost, he would not be accepted in the eyes of God the Father, nor would he have endured the sufferings of the cross. Had he not presented himself through the Holy Ghost, his blood would not have remained pure and spotless. If the Holy Spirit had not been with Jesus, he could have sinned. That's right. It was the power of the Holy Spirit that kept him pure. He was both the Son of God and the Son of Man, and as such the possibility of sinning existed. If it were not possible for the Son of Man to sin, why would Satan waste his time tempting him? The devil knew what he was doing. Without the Holy Ghost, Jesus would never have made it. Remember, it was through the power of the Spirit that Christ was raised from the dead. Here is what Scripture says. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Not only did the Spirit raise Christ, He is the one who will also raise you. God has a detailed master plan for your life. His anointing and His Spirit are included in the blueprint. Now He who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a deposit. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Have you made room for the Holy Spirit? All He asks is a place in your heart. Chapter 10. Only a breath away. Why doesn't God answer my prayer? Why can't I receive my deliverance and my healing? The answer to your most urgent need is close, much closer than you ever imagined. Just a word spoken from your heart can cause life's darkest clouds suddenly to disappear. It's time to stop thinking that God is an unapproachable spirit residing millions of miles away. The Father is so near that you can talk to Him at any moment, and His Spirit is so close that He can give you comfort, peace, and direction. All you have to do is ask and trust that He will act. The Trinity, as we see, is comprised of three distinct and unique entities. But you need to understand their oneness, their unity. It is essential that you recognize that the all-embracing oneness we are talking about is connected to the work of the Godhead. Let's put them back in the usual order of Scripture. What is the primary work of the Father? He operates. And what about the Son? He administrates the operation of the Father. And the Holy Ghost manifests the administration of that operation. If you need life, to whom do you turn? You look to the Father because He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. The source is the Father, but the giver of that source is Christ, and the power of the source is the Holy Spirit. 
So, when you need life, here is what happens. You look up to God the Father and say, Father, give me life, or healing, or deliverance. You see, God is the source of everything. That's where the work of the Holy Spirit enters the picture. He presents himself to manifest the healing that was provided by God and served by his Son. It is the Spirit who completes the process of your healing. It began at Pentecost. The Holy Ghost descended from heaven to make manifest the Word of the Godhead. And exactly where is the Spirit today? Where does He make His residence? The Spirit does not stand beside Jesus, as many well-intentioned people believe, and He does not stand alongside the Father. He was given to you and to me as the Comforter, or the One by our side. Isn't it time you turn to the Spirit of God and say, Holy Spirit, you are my helper. I need you. Will you help me now? The very second you utter those words from your heart, the Holy Ghost will place his hand on you, and something marvelous will happen. Suddenly you will find yourself literally in the Spirit, absorbed in his presence and his person. When the Father gives you something, it comes of the Father. And when the Son gives you something, it is usually described as coming through Jesus. But when the Holy Ghost provides, it is given in Him. Of, through, in. Just three little words, but they are mighty and powerful. What is important in all this is that you realize that the Trinity is actually working together to accomplish one goal to meet your need. They are, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but they are one. They are a team working together in complete accord and eternal harmony. When you ask the Son of God to come into your heart, you are making a personal covenant with God. And it's not a one-way conversation. God also makes an agreement or a covenant with you. That's the way he has always worked. Perhaps the most important covenant of all is the one God made to you through his Son, when he brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. I have come to believe that the Holy Spirit enters your life as the result of the eternal covenant God made with you regarding your salvation. He is God's messenger and Christ's to you from that moment on. And that agreement is to be taken seriously. Can you imagine being in that spot? You think you're filled, but you're not. You believe you're anointed, but the Spirit is gone. Remember what happened to Samson? After Delilah had his head shaved while he was sleeping, she shouted, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Judges chapter 16 verse 20. Samson was totally unaware that he had betrayed his calling and his covenant with God. He believed he still had strength, but the Spirit had vanished from his life. Do you know that every unbeliever is influenced by demon spirits? It sounds shocking, but that's what Scripture says. And he made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You say, but that could never happen to me. 
I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. That may be true, but if for any reason the presence of the Holy Spirit leaves you, a vacuum is created, and that is exactly what Satan is looking for. Then his influence turns to oppression. Satan's plan of attack is this. Every demon that has left a life will return at a later date to see if the opportunity to reoccupy that life is available. And if he is given a chance, he will bring others along with him to bring additional torment and oppression to that individual. It's a frightening situation, but one that you can avoid by staying completely, totally filled with the Holy Spirit and never breaking your covenant with God. The Lord not only wants to remove Satan and his demons from your life, those things that are a barrier to your healing and deliverance, but he wants to fill that empty void. That's why he sent the Comforter. He wants you to be filled with the Spirit. Right now, the Spirit is on earth. In fact, he is waiting patiently for your invitation. All it takes is just a word, even a whisper. Holy Spirit, please help me. Your answer is only a breath away. Chapter 11 Why are you weeping? Benny, can blasphemy against the Father be forgiven? A new Christian asked recently. Yes, I answered. What about blasphemy against the Son? That can be forgiven too, I said. Then can you tell me why blasphemy against the Holy Ghost can't be forgiven? For many people, the topic is troublesome. But the Spirit has given me freedom from the fear of committing the unpardonable sin. He unlocked my understanding with such a revelation that I no longer worry over the subject. I was in prayer when suddenly I knew that the Spirit of God was in my room, and I felt He was weeping. I know it sounds strange, and I must confess I don't fully understand it. But I do remember that I was on my knees when I felt His presence, and sensed that He was quietly weeping. The experience was so real that I literally turned my face to the left and said, Spirit of the Lord, why are you weeping? There was no answer. And at that moment, the tears began flowing down my own cheeks. Through my watering eyes, I asked him again, Spirit of the Lord, why are you weeping? Then suddenly, my entire being began to cry out. It was no longer just tears. The reality of what I felt was so great I began to groan. The feeling came from deep inside. It was as if I were heartbroken like a person who had just lost a son or a daughter. I looked up and said, Lord, why? I prayed to be released from this unexplainable weight on my shoulders. At that moment, God Almighty transformed that heaviness of grief into a burden for lost souls that I had never known before. What began with my turning to ask the Holy Spirit, Why are you weeping? ended with a life-changing burden for the lost that has never left me, not once to this day. I came away from that experience, even though I still do not understand it fully, convinced that the Holy Spirit grieves for the world. There was another reason that God allowed me to endure that lesson, and it made it possible for me to fit together the pieces of the puzzle called the unpardonable sin. Exactly what does Scripture say? Jesus said, 
Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. What does the word blasphemy encompass? The word has several meanings, including to revile or to abuse, reproach, or speak profanity of, to speak evil of, to rail or scoff, to defame, to speak with injury, to slander or to accuse falsely, to insult. Some may ask, how do you defame the Holy Ghost, or how do you insult him? It is a willful act. The book of Hebrews speaks directly to the issue. If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Why is there no forgiveness for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Why is the Holy Ghost so shielded by Christ that Jesus would say, My blood will wash every sin but that? He even said, But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Mark chapter 3, verse 29. Why? Again, it is because the Holy Spirit is different and his heart can so easily be touched with pain. Ask yourself, Am I with him? If the answer is yes, then ask, Do I gather souls for him? If the answer is still yes, you can say, Then I will never blaspheme the Spirit. What a joy to dwell on the victories described by Paul in Romans 8. In fact, Paul shares seven specific revelations in the first 16 verses of his letter. Perhaps nowhere in Scripture is the work of the Spirit so clearly defined. 1. There is power over sin. The first revelation says that the law of the Spirit of life gives you freedom from sin and death. Verses 1 and 2. You'll have dominion over sin. 2. He will fulfill the law, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verses 3 and 4. It is the fulfillment of the law of Moses that has produced the freedom we now have in the Spirit. 3. He will give you the mind of God. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verses 5 through 8. 4. He will give you righteousness. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Verses 9 and 10. 5. He will give life to your body. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you.
Verse 11. If you follow in the footsteps of the Holy Ghost, you will walk in health. You will have a quickened body. As the prophet Isaiah said, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Chapter 40, verse 31. My friend, you cannot renew your strength without the Holy Ghost, because he is the one who quickens the mortal body. 6. He will bring death to self. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Verses 12 through 14. 7. He will testify of your salvation. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Verses 15 and 16. In verse after verse, Paul tells you that it is the Spirit that does the work of the Father and the Son. And I get excited every time I read those glorious words, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And now he is waiting for you. Chapter 12 Heaven on Earth my first sermons in 1974 and early 1975 did not have much content. They were basically my testimony of the work of the Spirit, of how He made Himself so real to me. In those days, I really didn't know too much, and there was so much to learn. But during 1975, I heard the unmistakable voice of the Holy Spirit telling me that it was time to begin conducting weekly meetings in Toronto. He said, follow me. Hear my voice, and you will lead many to Christ. And so I began. On Monday nights, we scheduled a series of services that would continue for the next five years. We started in a high school auditorium, and the crowds became so large we had to move to larger facilities. Hundreds and hundreds of people attended. The services were totally led by the Spirit, and I listened ever so closely to His voice. People were delivered from serious addictions families were reunited. We had healing lines and heard testimonies of miracles. But always, always, the services resulted in the salvation of lost souls. The press began to take notice. On the front pages of the Toronto Star, the Toronto Globe and Mail, and other papers across Canada, there were stories of the miracle rallies we were conducting. In December 1976, the Globe and Mail sent a reporter to one of the services to describe in detail what was happening. Television stations began to film documentaries on what God was doing. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC, Global TV, and the huge independent station in Toronto, Channel 9, produced specials. We also aired our own weekly television program that was shown in prime time after 60 minutes for a year and a half. Through all these avenues, the news of God's miracle healing power began to spread. Leaving the great city of Toronto in 1979 was not easy for me. It was where I had been saved, healed, and touched by the mighty Spirit of God. The press had nothing but good news to report about the ministry, but again I promised to follow the leading of the Holy Ghost. I wondered, where will it be? New York? Los Angeles? But you know, the Spirit has an amazing way of leading you. In July 1978, I traveled to Orlando, Florida to speak for Pastor Roy Harthorn. 
He told me about his daughter Suzanne, who was attending Evangel College in Springfield, Missouri. Being single, my ears perked up. I invited myself back to spend Christmas with them, and Suzanne was home for the holidays. The first time I saw her, the Lord said, That's your wife. Just like that, I felt it, and she did too. We were engaged within two weeks, in January 1979, and married later that year. As time passed, all signs pointed to Orlando, Florida, as the place we would begin a worldwide ministry. With just a handful of people, the Orlando Christian Center was started in 1983. Now it touches the lives of thousands of people every week, plus a national television audience. To be honest, I had no idea where the Spirit would lead my life when I began my relationship with Him. All I knew was that He was real and desired my fellowship. He wanted to be my teacher and guide. But here is what I have come to know. The Holy Ghost will never promote Himself. He'll promote Jesus. He will never create the place of greatness just for Himself. He'll give the honor to the Lord. I've also learned that the Spirit is not the source of God's gifts. He is the one who helps you receive from the giver who is God the Father. He's also the one who helps you receive God the Son as Savior and Lord. From the moment you accept Jesus as Savior, it is the Spirit that gives you the will, the strength, and the desire to obey God and live the Christian life. Without Him, it is impossible. When you see Jesus face to face, you won't say, Lord, look what I did. You'll say, Lord, look what you did with this wretched man. Start practicing it. Open your arms wide and say, Spirit of the living God, I want to live for Jesus today. I give you my mind, my emotion, my will, my intellect, my lips, my mouth, my ears, and my eyes. Use them for the glory of God. As both a young Christian and a new minister, I often stood back and watched the Lord at work. I knew it wasn't me that was touching lives. It was the sovereignty of God and the operation of the Spirit. I just watched in amazement. But I don't think I've been as frightened in my life as that Sunday night in April of 1975. There I was on the platform of a small Pentecostal church on the west side of Toronto when my parents, Costandi and Clements, walked in the door. I couldn't even glance in their direction. But the moment I opened my mouth to preach... The anointing of the Holy Spirit filled that building. It was so strong. Words began flowing out of me like a river. I found myself actually listening to what the Spirit directed me to say. After the service, I got into my car and began to drive the streets of Toronto. I thought, if I get home in the middle of the night, my parents will be sleeping. It was just after two o'clock in the morning when I quietly parked in front of the house and turned off the ignition. I tiptoed up the steps and slowly opened the front door and was startled by what I saw. There, in front of me, seated on the couch, were my mother and father. My father was the first to speak, and I listened in disbelief. Son, he softly said, how can we become like you? Was I hearing what I thought I was hearing? Was this the same man? that had been so offended by my conversion. 
the Father that had absolutely forbidden the name of Jesus to be spoken in our home. We really want to know, he said. Tell us how we can have what you have. I looked at my dear mother and saw tears beginning to fall down her beautiful cheeks. I couldn't contain my joy at that moment. I began to weep, and for the next hour of that unforgettable night, I opened the Scripture and led my parents to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. My daddy said, Benny, do you know what convinced me? He told me that when I began preaching, he turned to my mother and said, That's not your son. Your son can't talk. His God must be real. He didn't know that I had been totally healed of stuttering. The marvelous conversion of my parents allowed the Lord to literally sweep through the rest of the family. The Hin home was transformed into heaven on earth, and the change was not temporary. It was a permanent work of the Spirit. Today, Chris, Willie, Henry, Sammy, and Mike are totally involved in ministry. Mary and Rose are committed Christians and living for the Lord. And Benny, <laughs> well, you know what has happened to him. Just as the Holy Spirit touched my life and drew my parents to Christ, he wants the same for you. The greatest work of the Spirit is not to lead you into some heavenly ecstasy on earth. That may happen, but his purpose is to convict of sin and lead people to Jesus. He is waiting to begin a relationship with you that will change your life forever. But it's up to you to extend the invitation. When the sun comes up tomorrow, he will be longing to hear you say, Good morning, Holy Spirit. That concludes Good Morning, Holy Spirit by Benny Hinn, pastor of the Orlando Christian Center. For more information on other tapes and books by Benny Hinn, please write to Benny Hinn Media Ministry, Post Office Box 90, Orlando, Florida, 32802-0090.